Amen. Good morning. Everything that happens will happen today. Be in the now. Live for the moment. Breaking news, breaking news. This just in. This is just a handful of the slogans that fill our world and our discourse these days. Surely you will hear some of them this week. Maybe you already have. We live in a time when it seems like everything is urgent. News and major world-changing events are coming at us, it feels like, every single day. It gives us the impression that this is it. Right now, this moment, the next headline is the most significant moment in history. I know when I visit with someone, when I have a meal with them, I feel a little embarrassed if I don't have a good answer to the question, what's new or what's going on? And in a lot of ways, it's understandable why we would feel this way. The last 365 days have been quite unique. And there's really no way to escape it. There's simply too many communication and media channels surrounding us, pressing in on us, that we can't escape that feeling that history is moving fast and it brings with it this intended anxiety that comes with a feeling that everything is happening at once and we're caught up in forces out of our control. Force is too big to even understand, yet we feel compelled that we have to have an opinion, even if we don't really understand what's going on. I mean, I haven't met anyone who said, COVID vaccine? Yeah, I really don't have any opinion on it. Race in America? I don't think I know enough to weigh in. Masks? I haven't really thought about it. Politics? I don't get involved. Capital riot? Eh, this is one of those things. No, no. Not only are the headlines breaking fast over our heads, but the climate is such that you're made to feel like these are all such life and death events that if you don't pick a side, you will be standing on the shoulder of the road and history will speed by you without you. It all contributes to a constant feeling of urgency and persistent anxiety that life is on the constant verge of gridlock and or breakdown. So, I'd like to do something in this sermon that I don't think I've ever done before. I don't know if I'll ever do it again. And that is start with the application. Start with the so what, then we'll move to theology. And here's the application. The goal for today is to come out of the morass and catch our breath. To take a big picture look at history, the meaning of history, the goal of history, and why does that matter to you? We've been looking so much through the microscope at the finer details of current events, that this morning I want to look through the telescope, the telescope of Scripture. That is, all these major headlines are pushing our heads down to stare and to gawk at the minuscule. Well, sometimes we need to look at the stars. I want to give you a big vision of life, the universe, and everything that will orient you and co help us collect ourselves. And then... Send us back into the fray. And the Psalms will do that for us. As Tommy said, we'll look at the whole of what's called the Psalter. 150 Psalms, 1 through 150. You put those together, that's called the Psalter. So go ahead and turn in the Psalter to Psalm chapter 1 in your Bibles. And we're going to be doing a lot of page turning. We're going to be going fast, of course. And as you turn there, let me remind you of... Uh, a scene in The Hobbit, it's in both the book and the movie, where 
uh, Bilbo and his traveling companions go into an enchanted forest, a forest that has a spell put on it. And as soon as they get in there, the place starts messing with their heads. They get disoriented, they're confused, anxious, hallucinating, they're particularly agitated, even angry with each other. They simply cannot think straight. But Bilbo, for reasons I can't remember, climbs up a tree and gets his head up over the canopy and he breathes in fresh air, air that isn't poisoned by the spell in the forest. And he's able to clear his head. And as he's up there, as you can imagine, when you're elevated, you can see further. He sees the destination to which they're going. And he shouts down, hey, I can see it. I can see where we're going. I can see the destination, our goal. And he looks back, and I, I can see where we were. And he can see the whole landscape. In other words, he came out of that situation where everything was right in front of his face to see further. And that's what the Psalms do for us. The Psalms lift us out of the morass, out of the anxiety, to give us a big, grand vision of what God is doing from the beginning all the way to the end of history. And so all the Psalms put together, again, there are 150 of them, written by many authors, written over hundreds of years, and so they each address a unique situation in the author's life. They each have their own individual theology and contribution and application, but somebody took them and put them all together in the order in which we have them to create a composite picture. So again, we're going to go fast, and while we can't hit every psalm, nonetheless, we will see enough of them to show us a beautiful mosaic of time and space and the meaning of history. I think of it like those pictures where there's a bunch of individual pictures, but when you take a big step back, they form a larger picture, right? A mosaic. Uh, I think the first one I ever saw was of flowers. So here's a, here's a rose, here's an iris, here's a zinnia, here's a dandelion, well, dandelions are weeds, daffodil or something like that, right? And, and, and each one is its own little flower, but the colors and the shape of them actually come together to make a much larger flower. And that's what the Psalms are doing for us. Go ahead and throw that first slide up there. Each Psalm, a little picture in and of itself, is creating actually a philosophy of history. A philosophy of history. Now what do I mean by that? An understanding of what is history, how is history progressing and where do I find myself? Where's it coming from? And where's it going? And indeed, here's the point. History has a goal. History has a goal. And what is the goal? The goal of history under God's providential care is a new creation brought about through suffering. A new creation brought about through suffering and particularly, particularly the suffering of the great son of David. The goal of history is to bring about a new creation, a new Eden, as it were, brought about through the suffering of the great son of David. Now, what do I mean by the great son of David? What suffering do we particularly have in mind? What does new creation mean? We will get to all that. But again, the point is, if we trace with the Psalms, we track with the flow of the Psalms, the overall composite message, then I think we will be able to catch our breath from the chaos of the world, just in time for the Lord to take our breath away with his grand, larger design.
So to that end, let's pray, and then we'll jump into Psalm 1. Lord, we give you thanks. We give you great praise that you have seen fit to give us your word. You have not left us in the dark. You have not left us to grope and to wonder, but you have told us who you are, who we are, and what, where are we in the world and what's going on through your scriptures. And so I pray that right now, even though we'll go fast, you would be pleased to open up our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the first thing to observe in the book of Psalms is that the Psalms are actually organized into five books. Five books as we call them. So if you're looking at Psalm 1 right now, if you look right above where it says Psalm 1, it will say book 1. And if you turn over to Psalm 42, keep your, keep your finger in Psalm 1, but just glance quickly at Psalm 42, right above verse 1, it will say what? Book 2. Turn to Psalm 73, you know what you'll find there, book 3. Psalm 90, book 4, and if you look at Psalm 107, right before Psalm 107, it says book 5. So somebody has taken these psalms written in diverse places by diverse authors in response to various situations addressing different theological themes, different applications, and brought them together with some kind of order, some kind of order. And the way to get at, well, what is that order, is to look at what we call the seam psalms. The seam psalms. Like in your clothing right now, you've got one panel of cloth and then another, and holding it together, holding them together, is the seam. The seam. And so the question is, if we're going to understand the structure of this big thing called the Psalter, 150 of them, if we look at the seam psalms, the ones that begin and end each book, Beginning of book one, end of book one. Beginning of book two, end of book two. Beginning of book three, end of book three. You understand? We're looking at the seams, that is to say, those parts that are holding it all together. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at, as many as we can, the seam psalms as we move from Psalm 1 up through Psalm 150 to get that big picture. Okay? So we'll begin, of course, in Psalm 1. And this is the only one that I'll read in its entirety. Okay? So this is Psalm 1, beginning in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. But they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. In a lot of ways, Psalm 1 is like a table of contents for the rest of the Psalter. You've got everything in there. You've got the righteous and the wicked. You've got the law of the Lord. You've got uh, people who are obedient, who are disobedient. You've got all kinds of creation, nature imagery, trees, streams, fruit, leaves, uh, which you'll see throughout the Psalms. But the question I want to ask at the very beginning is in that very first verse, in the very first line of the first verse, blessed is the man. What man? Who is that man? Who is the man who, verse 2, meditates on the law day and night? Who's like a tree, streams of water, by streams of water. Everything he does, he prospers. Verse 3, who is this man? 
Well, in one sense, and this is very true, this is any man, woman, or child. Anybody can meditate on the law day and night and find the kinds of blessings in their life that the Lord brings with such attention to his word. But did you notice how much garden imagery there is? A tree, streams of water, fruit, leaves, right? You got the rivers. And, and when does he meditate on the law? Verse 2, day and night. At the end of the psalm, the wind is blowing, and he's got the law of the Lord. Now, let's think about this. Where do you see so much garden imagery, trees, rivers, fruit, the wind is blowing, and the context is day and night, and a man is placed in that context? It's the Garden of Eden. Someone, someone said it. Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. This is the origins of humanity. In other words, Psalm 1 is describing this is how humanity is supposed to be. This is the primordial, original state of creation, the way God intended us to be, with the law of God on our fingertips and on our mind, putting our hand to the plow, working and prospering, being blessed by the Lord. In fact, that's the first thing it says in Genesis 1.28. He blessed them and then gave them instruction. All right, so you have all this Genesis 1, Garden of Eden, this is Adam. This is humanity in a thriving, flourishing relationship with God, in the presence of God, in joyful fellowship with each other, and at peace with the earth. It's a beautiful vision. But then comes Psalm 2. Look how Psalm 2 begins. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away the cords from us. In other words, if Genesis, I'm sorry, if Psalm 1 is the way life is supposed to be, Psalm 2 is how it really is. The nations are raging against God. They're rebelling against God. They don't want his rule. They don't want his law. They don't want his sovereignty. They don't want his Messiah. They want to go their own way and burst free. And the rest of Psalm 2 shows you how the Lord reacts to that kind of rebellion. He doesn't wring his hands. He doesn't fret. He doesn't break a sweat. In fact, verse 4 says he sits in heaven and he laughs. Look at those, look at those little ants <laughs> trying to fight against their creator. But I've got a solution. Verse 6. As for me, I've set my king on Zion. My holy hill. That's the Lord's solution. That's the Lord's solution. You're rebelling against me. I will install a king to rule over you and bring about your obedience and to stop your rebelling. So verse 7, the Messiah speaks back. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. And so what, he does, what the Lord does is he hands over those rebellious people to his son. Now to rule over them and to bring about their obedience. In other words, the Lord has in mind a new man. A new man. If Adam was the first man and he was supposed to live in the Garden of Eden in the presence of God with a blessedness and fruitfulness and human thriving as he meditates on the law day and night, he has failed. And so have all of his children. In other words, you and me. But now there will be a new man, a king of a man, who will bring us back to a Psalm 1 context, back into the presence of God, back into the blessings of God. 
Now look at verse, look at Psalm 3. Psalm 3, and notice how it begins. It begins with something called the superscript. Uh, sometimes I call it verse 0 because it doesn't get a number in your Bible. But we should pay attention to it. So in Psalm 3, it begins like this, a psalm of David. David is the new man, in other words. Or to put it another way, the house of David. Now, this isn't, uh, I can't, can't go into too much depth here, but in the Old Testament, there is no more important person than David. David, more important than Moses, more important than Abraham. Maybe that's debatable, but David is critical. And here's why. If you want to do some reading this afternoon, a little light devotional, read 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7, because in 2 Samuel 7, you will read how the Lord promises to David something he's promised to nobody else. And it is this, that his kingdom will last forever. David will be a king to reign over Israel and over the nations forever. In other words, he will be the king of Psalm 2. But more to the point, it's not just David himself, it's his dynasty, it's his family, you understand? Because one of David's sons will build the temple which restores God's presence to earth, which is what Adam had in the Garden of Eden, you understand? So it's David, and particularly the dynasty of David, the house of David, that will bring about this new kind of creation. Yet, look at the rest of that opening Superscript for Psalm 3. A Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. Why was he fleeing from Absalom? Well, it's simple. Absalom was trying to kill him. His own son was trying to kill him. Saul, the king before David, tried to kill him. Goliath tried to kill him. There's no end to the stories, it seems like, of people who are trying to get David, trying to take him out. And so the rest of book one is all about David going through trial after trial, suffering after suffering, on his way to being the king who will bring rest to the people of Israel and maybe even to the nations. In fact, I bet you all know the famous Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. See, that's not just good rhetoric. This is just poetic language, the valley of the shadow of death. Oh, that's good. No, no, it's more than that. David actually thought he was going to die. There are many times where David thought, well, this is it. They've got me now. He's right on the verge of death. In fact, Psalm 22 begins with these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then carries on for several verses about how his enemies have finally got him. They've got him to the point where they're dividing his clothes. They want to take his garments. Well, because they know he's about to die. So they going to take his clothes from him. Right? But then suddenly, in the middle of Psalm 22, the persecution stops. Turns out he's not dead. Instead, he comes out to rule over the very enemies that were trying to kill him. What a switch. And that's the point of book one. That even though David is the anointed king, set aside by God to bring about his purposes in history, nonetheless, he goes through deep, deep trials, deep, deep suffering, almost to the point of death yet comes out victoriously every single time. In fact, look at the next seam psalm, Psalm 41, the last psalm in book one, Psalm 41. And look at verse nine. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, 
who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. It's one thing for Saul and Goliath to be after him. But now his friends are trying to kill him. I mean, David is a man alone. But look at verse 10. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. So through all those struggles, all those trials, all that suffering, the Lord rescues him every single time. And that's how book one ends. And so to summarize, book one is the experience of the Lord's newly anointed new man, King David, as he goes through suffering on his way to ruling the nations. Book two then continues that theme, only not with David, but with his son Solomon. Like I said, it's not only about David, it's about David's family, and the next man up in line after David is David's son Solomon. So we'll skip Psalm 42 for time, but go to Psalm 72. Psalm 72 is a critical psalm because it marks a high water mark in the Psalter. And again, if you look at the superscript, if you look at the superscript, it will say something like of Solomon, or maybe to Solomon, or for Solomon. And this, it turns out, is David's prayer for Solomon. So if you look at verse 20, it says the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So Psalm 72 is clearly a, a prayer of David. But it doesn't mean it's David's last prayer in the Psalter. If you keep reading, you'll find more, more Davidic psalms. But the point is this. What does it mean that his prayers are ended? It means when David comes to the end of his life and he thinks about, what is the point of my life? Where is all this going in God's purposes and using my house? He, he starts to pray for Solomon. He prays that my son will take over the kingdom. And he prays for Solomon. And notice what he prays in verse 1. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. David's primary concern is David, I'm sorry, Solomon takes over for him and continues God's purposes in history and redemption is that he be righteous and that he be just. There's no concern here of secure borders or economic prosperity. There's one singular focus righteousness, doing the right thing, obeying the law of God, and justice, treating people as they ought to be treated. In fact, verse 2 goes on. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. See, the rich people, they can probably defend themselves, but the poor have nobody. Solomon, may he be the one who sticks up for those who need him. Poor, destitute, down and out, marginalized. Solomon will be there to bring them justice and to be their righteous leader. That's David's concern. That's what David wants out of the, uh, 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 the kingdom going forward, and that's what he's thinking about in his very last prayer. And now, what will it look like? What will the experience be like for the people if Solomon can be righteous and justice? Look at verse 16. Psalm 72, verse 16. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. 
may people blossom in the cities. What a beautiful metaphor. People don't blossom. Flowers blossom, right? But that's the point. This is the time of year where you see lots of flowers blooming and blossoming. What a great metaphor. If David, I'm sorry, if Solomon can be righteous and just, if he can lead with that kind of selfless interest, caring for the people, doing what's right, leading them also in doing what's right, then they will be like flowers coming up in the springtime. I'm sure you've also seen flowers that are parched, don't have enough water, they're wilting, dying and turning brown. Depending on how Solomon leads, the people can wilt and die or bloom and flourish. And it all depends on the righteous obedience of that son. Look also at verse 8. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This blooming and flourishing and human thriving will extend from Israel all the way out all around the globe if he will simply be righteous and just. In other words, a certain society of people comes forth when the king in the line of David is righteous and just. That's David's hope. That's David's prayer. That a kind of the Garden of Eden would be reset for humanity to thrive and flourish and bloom and blossom under the leadership of the son of David. Solomon is number one. But we know how the history of Israel goes. Solomon has his good days. Solomon has his bad days. And each son, subsequent son in the line of David, Solomon's sons and grandsons and so on and so forth, go from bad to worse. There are a few good parts in there, some good kings in there. And what we notice is that when the king is righteous, again, so are the people. He fo they follow his example. But when the king is wicked, when the king is disobedient to the word of God, the people also follow suit. And so the history of Israel begins to spiral down. So let's look at the first seam psalm here, Psalm 73. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps have almost slipped. So right after this great Psalm 72, this is what we'll have if, if the son of David is righteous and just. The next psalm confesses, but we slipped. We are slipping. And so while something is happening in this guy Asaph's life that makes him pray this prayer very personally, he's envious of, of the arrogant, nonetheless, he is emblematic of the entire nation. That Israel itself, following the decline of the kings, is slipping, slipping into exile. Turn to the next theme psalm, Psalm 89. And this one might be the most depressing. It starts off really well. 37 verses where the psalmist is repeating the great promises that God has made, specifically to the house of David. Look at verse 27. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Sounds like Psalm 72. Verse 28, my steadfast love I will keep for him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. 
I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of heaven. Verse 34. I will not violate my covenant or alter the words that went forth from my mouth. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. Verse 37. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. So for 37 verses, the psalmist is thinking, this is what David was promised. This is God's design through David for the world. Then verse 38. But, but now, you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced to the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. Look at verse 44. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. What's going on here? What's going on here? This is the exile. This is that moment in Israel's history where Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon and military general, came across the desert and sieged Jerusalem, captured its royalty, took them back to to Babylon, dragging them across the desert, destroyed the temple, burned the city, and led the sons of David away in chains. Killed some, led others away in chains. And so that great hope, that great vision that David had for a flourishing, thriving people through Solomon and subsequent kings, if they be righteous and just, is completely lost. And the psalmist is bewildered. You said these great things, but now, now you've renounced them. You defiled his throne. His throne is cast down to the ground. And so in verse 46, he cries out, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Now, of course, you say, no, he won't hide himself forever. But that's because you live here now. If you were one of the exiles, if you saw your home destroyed, if you were taken captive across the desert, if you were made to eat someone else's food, wear someone else's clothes, speak someone else's language, live in someone else's land, worship someone else's gods, you would have asked the question, how long, O Lord, have you abandoned us forever? Have you changed your mind on what you're doing through us and through the house of David? And you would pray equally like in verse 49. Where is your steadfast love of old? Which by your faithfulness you swore to David. Remember. Remember, O Lord. See, here's one of the things that's great about the Psalms. A lot of things that are great. But here's one thing. Is that what we're seeing here is a trajectory, aren't we? The original purpose for humanity, lost by rebellion, planned to be reinstalled through David and Solomon and others. And there's this hope, there's this moment where it looks like David and Solomon are going to restore the original creation, bring us back into the presence of God, make us blessed again like the man in Psalm 1, but then down it goes. And it ends up in exile, death, and despair, asking the question, God, have you given up altogether? Right? That's where we are. And I hope you see this already, but where are we going to end up with this? We're going to end up with Jesus, aren't we? Jesus is the anointed king. Jesus is the great son of David. It's on every page in the New Testament. He's a son of David, who's the king. He's the creator of the universe, come in flesh. 
Yet, he has to go through suffering, through trials. His own friend, Judas, is the one who betrays him. And he doesn't come close to death. He truly dies. And yet he comes out so that in Matthew 28, he can say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He rules everything through the cross and in the resurrection on the other side. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so the history of Israel maps onto the life of the Messiah. But here's the point. The life of the Messiah also maps onto the life of the church and the experience of the individual Christian. There are times when you, like Psalm 72, might say, I am just blooming and flourishing, blossoming like the flowers. Jesus is good and kind, and I know him, and I'm walking with him, and his righteousness and his justice are over my life, and I learn from him ethics, and I learn how to talk to people, and I learn how to, how to carry myself, and I learn how to treat people, and what to do with my money, and what to do with my time. He is leading me in righteousness and justice. But then there are other times when you might say, how long, O oh Lord, will you hide your face forever? When you will say, remember, O oh Lord, and you will cry out. And so book three is this descent into the darkness. Book four then, book four is life in the darkness. It's life in exile. It's life in, it's, it's the nearness of death. So book one and book two are climbing up to this great vision. Book three slides down and book four lives in the mire. Life in the mire. And when you feel like you're in the mire, what do you need? You need Psalm 90. Look at the first seam psalm of book four. And notice, once again, the superscript, a prayer of Moses. There's only one psalm written by Moses, only one. Here it is. Now, if it were me putting the psalms together, I probably would have put Moses first, because it's, it's, it's most likely, I mean, it's got to be the oldest psalm. It's got to be the oldest one, the first one ever written. But that's not where it goes. It doesn't go number one. It goes here. Because when you're in exile, when you're, in, when you're facing death, when you're being persecuted, when you're suffering, you need to remember Moses. Again, think about it. Israel was in Egypt. They were enslaved. The Pharaoh was killing their children. They didn't know the ways and the law of God. They were completely destitute. And the Lord gave them Moses. The Lord sent a deliverer to bring them out of the fiery furnace, to bring them to himself, to give them a tabernacle, to give them a law, to give them the land, to give them David, and to cause them to flourish and bloom and blossom. And so it's in that situation where Moses steps forward and tells the people to remember. So if Psalm 89 is saying, remember, O Lord, Psalm 90 is saying, you remember. You remember faithfulness of the Lord in the past and what he can do again. So let's turn to Psalm 106. And this is the way Psalm 106 ends. How does Psalm 106 end? Verse 47. 106, 47. Save us, O Lord, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. It ends with this prayer to gather us. We're scattered. We're all over the world. 
We're lost. Some are in Babylon. Some are in Egypt. Some are in the north. We're just scattered all over the place. Lord, gather us together again and make us your people so we can give you thanks and give you glory and give you praise in your presence. So if book four is about life in exile, book five is about what? Coming out of exile. Look at 107, verse three. Or verse two. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, who has redeemed us from our troubles and gathered us from the lands, from the east, from the west, from the north, from the south. So 106 says, Lord, gather us. 107 says, he has gathered us. He has brought us out of exile. And the most important psalm, probably in the entire Psalter, is Psalm 110. 110. And look who wrote it. David. If the house of David was thrown down in 89... It's back. The house of David leads the people out of exile, out of the grave, into a new creation. And notice in particular, verse 1. The Lord said to me, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. So 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2, David is a king. He's ruling amongst his enemies. But look also at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest. David, David's great son, is not only a king, but he's also a priest. Now, why is that important? Because priests make sacrifices. Priests make atonement for sin. If it's sin that sent Israel into exile in the first place, it's an atonement for sin that brings them out. And the same is true of you and me. Ultimately, we're all in exile. We've all been kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Because of Adam's sin, because of your sin, because of my sin. And so therefore, we need a king, but we need a priest who will atone for our sins and bring us back. Again, this is Jesus. There's no doubt about it. it Jesus three times uses Psalm 110 to apply it to himself. And the book of Hebrews is an extended meditation on Psalm 110. Several chapters on Psalm 110. The point is, Jesus is the great priest king who leads Israel and his international people out of the mire of death and exile, back into his presence, on a trajectory again to a new creation. So look where the Psalms end. Psalm 148. Psalm 148. We're almost to the end here. Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. This is where it's going. It went through the valley of the shadow of death and is coming out now to this, through the great son of David in his sacrifice, his death and his resurrection. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all the angels. Praise him and all the hosts. Now listen to the next verses and to the creation language, the language of nature. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Jump down to verse 7. Praise him from the earth. You great sea creatures and all the deeps, hail and fire, snow and mist, stormy wind, filling, fulfilling his word, mountains and hills, fruit trees and all the cedars, beasts and all livestock, creepy things and flying birds, everything. Praise the Lord. The point is, when the great priest king in the line of David, Jesus Christ, sacrifices himself as atonement for our sins and is raised from the grave, he is bringing with him a redirection of the purpose of history towards that new creation. In other words, it is Jesus Christ who is the new man, who rules the nations and atones for sins so that he might bring creation back to the Garden of Eden. And that's where we're headed. 
If you're a Christian today, your final destiny is not some six-by-three plot in the ground over there. Your final destination is a new creation, a new heavens, a new earth, the Garden of Eden, beyond your resurrection. When I was uh, like seven or something, I cheered for the Cardinals to win the World Series in 1985. And I couldn't make it through game seven. I fell asleep. And wouldn't you know it, I had to wait till the next morning to walk to the end of the driveway and get a newspaper to find out what happened. I had to wait all that time. My father, at 6.30 every day, sat down in front of the television to watch the evening news. We knew, like clockwork. Dinner had to be over. We had to be quiet. Dad was going to watch the evening news. He had to wait 24 hours to get the news. My grandfather, he didn't know World War II was over for several days. So for my grandfather waiting several days, to my father waiting 24 hours, to me waiting a night, now what do my kids need to do? They don't have to wait at all. Internet and streaming services cause everything to be on them all the time. I mean, think about that. Everything all the time is happening. And they have access to it. It creates, again, a sense of urgency and an expectation and anxiety that things are just happening all the time outside of my control. Well, here's what the Psalms do. The Psalms get you up above the canopy of all that riffraff to say, wait a second, wait a second. God is in control. And he's got a purpose through the son of David, Jesus, and his death and resurrection to bring about a new creation. And that's the trajectory I'm on. That's, other people may, may be stuck in the muck into the mire and in quicksand of this world. Not me. I'm on my way to a new creation and a resurrection through Jesus. And so are you. That's the vision. So here's my last point of the day. Next Sunday, I invite you to join my family and me on what we're calling a techno fast. A techno fast. No streaming services, no internet for one day. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Well, we'll probably go for a walk. We'll come to church. Later in the day, we'll come to the pitch in. We'll uh, read a, um, uh, what are they called? A book. Yes. We'll read a book. Do you understand? Life will go on just fine without us. And we will actually slow down the pace of our lives and think more about what does it mean to be situated in God's creation under his sovereign plan for time and space through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And I predict that I will lay down my head at night on Sunday night and just feel good that while I sleep in slumber, God never sleeps in slumber. And I'll be wake up the next day ready to fight another fight. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks. Again, we give you praise that you are an intentional, sovereign God. You don't wake up and read the headlines. You don't fret by the latest tweet. You know the end from the beginning because you planned it through Jesus Christ for the redemption of your people and the salvation of your creation. And I pray, Lord, that that would be the worldview that pervades Castleton Community Church as we live and move and have our being in our workplaces, neighborhoods, and families. To your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.